0: Well, the election is almost here and we are being bombarded to choose a side, to, if you will, proclaim your loyalty. Now, we might hope that it ends with the election, but for a follower of Jesus, and if you're here or you're watching and you're not a follower of Jesus, glad that you're with us. You are most welcome indeed, but for a follower of Jesus, our loyalty to Jesus is constantly being challenged. And here we are in Genesis chapter 14 for easy math. Let's just call it 4,000 years ago. And last week we saw Abram, or who became Abraham, defeated four powerful evil kings, rescued his nephew Lot and five other kings and, and all their families. And now... He's faced with a choice, a bigger choice than do I go rescue them. You see, it's often the case in life after a great victory, after some sort of success that you have, after a great blessing of God, or even after a tremendous disappointment, it is often followed by an important choice that you and I have to make. And so the title of our message today is, Which King Will You Follow? You're going to have to decide which one you're going to follow. There's always two kings. You could say three if you want to call yourself the third one, vying for your attention. So we left off last week with verse 16. After Abram had won the battle, it said this, Genesis 14, 16, "...so he brought back all the goods." And he also brought back his brother, Lot, again, brother being from the same family. It was his brother's son and his goods, as well as the women and the people. So it's a great time. We won. We won. We went out against the odds. Four superpower kings picking on five little kings that they basically were making them pay taxes and, and hush money and protection money and all that kind of stuff, kind of mafia stuff. And Abram goes out against the odds and the power of God, and he wins the battles. But no sooner are they back, and then two very different kings come out to speak with Abram. And he is faced with a choice. Look at verse 17. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley, that's near Jerusalem. After his return from the defeat of Ketelomer, And the kings who were with him. So, the the king of Sodom was one of the ones that was kidnapped, and all his people were kidnapped, and all his goods were kidnapped, and Lot was kidnapped with him. And so, he comes out to meet Abram after this great victory. So, who is the king of Sodom? Who is this guy who who comes out to meet Abram to uh, presumably congratulate him? Well, in chapter 13, we saw that Lot chose to live near Sodom, and chapter 13, verse 13 said this, but the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. So he's the king of the people that are exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. So do we think he's a good guy? Probably not. Probably not a good guy. Then in chapter 14, where we are now, verse 12, it said they, that would be the the, the four kings, the, the powerful kings, also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. So he, Lot went from living outside of Sodom and to living in Sodom. So that's what motivated Abram to go after them because it was Lot he really went after and his people. So who is the king of Sodom? He's Lot's king. That's who he is. And he's the king of a city that is exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. In verse 2, we learned last week that his name was Bera. Verse 10, we learned that he may have fallen into an asphalt pit as he was running away. Now, I don't know. Maybe. Do you think he got cleaned up for this meeting or you think he came as is? I always uh, like to picture the the little Hebrew kids going to bed and going, "Mommy and Daddy, tell us the story of the of the king who fell into the tar pits and then went to meet Father Abraham." So we'll just picture him as a dirty king. Now, it might appear that he's really that he's coming out of the valley near Jerusalem to the valley near Jerusalem to thank Abraham, but he's not. He's really coming out to tempt him. So what happens to Abraham? He finds himself moving from one battle to another. You ever feel like life is like that? It's like one battle's over, and and maybe you have a victory. And before you even had a chance to thank God for the victory, there's already another one. You know, you you get off the phone with someone. It's one of these things about having these blasted cell phones that just gives you no time to actually rest at at all. You get off the phone with somebody, you're like, oh, yes, Lord, thank you so much. And then there's a text or an email or a post or something like that. And you're like, oh, no, some, something else. So he's barely had time to move from one battle and another one comes along. And he moves from success and he's going to move to temptation and compromise. Now, Evil is very clever. How, how many of you know that evil never takes a vacation? <laughs> of course you do. This is Calvary Chapel. We all know this. <laughs> and, 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 and so he's going re- to receive from the king of Sodom what seems to be like a very reasonable business offer and an incredible political offer, but only through the eyes of faith Will Abram be able to see the compromise? You see, what's at stake for Abram is the line of the Messiah. That's big stuff, wouldn't you say? But what's at stake for us? Well, for at stake for us is faith or failure. And, and sometimes our failure is really tough to bounce back from, isn't it? Faith we, we seem to forget quickly, but failure seems to stick with us forever. It is, it is spiritual life or spiritual death that's at stake for us. And then we come to verse 18, and one of the most mysterious characters in all of the Bible appears. He is only spoken of in the Old Testament here and in Psalm 110. Yet the New Testament book of Hebrews, which we'll talk about in a little bit, tells us how important he is. Look at verse 18 through 20. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, Salem, think of Jerusalem, brought out bread and wine. Now, I know a lot of people think, oh boy, he brought out communion. I'm not so sure that's what that means. Uh, bread, a staple of life, wine often associated with joy. He was the priest of God Most High. So he's what? He's a true believer. He's a true believer. Verse 19, and he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram of, second time, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And, verse 20, blessed be God most high, third time he says that, who who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and he gave him a tithe or a tenth of all. You say, who's he? Well, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 6 tells us it's Abram. Abraham, who gives a tenth of all he had to Melchizedek, this king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. So, in the midst of the moral cesspool, the land of Canaan where the Canaanites live, I know up in our part of the world, some of you might call it the moral septic tank, but in the midst of the moral cesspool, a new king appears. Hebrews 7, 2 tells us that Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness, and he is the king of a city, Salem, whose name means peace. What, what, a, what a contrast. The king of righteousness, the king of the city of peace, is, is now standing there with Abram. And also there's the king of Sodom, who a city that is. If you will, use as the gold standard for sin and abomination. When you talk about a sin, sinful city, you know, people compare certain sinful cities in the United States to Sodom. Now, Melchizedek, very interesting, he, he appears out of nowhere. We're not told anything about him. No family history. You say, well, what's the big deal with that? Read the book of Genesis, and family histories are everywhere. Read the Bible, Old Testament, families' histories everywhere. He's a mysterious figure. Hebrews chapter 7 tells us that he symbolizes the eternal priesthood. Now, Melchizedek did not participate, as far as we know, in this battle against all odds. That Abraham went up against the four superpower kings, unless, of course, it's possible that he participated in fervent prayer. Maybe he heard about it. I have no idea. And he prayed for Abram in this battle. He brought out bread and wine, which would be staples and elements of life, presumably to celebrate the victory to bless Abraham, and to praise God for the victory. You see, Melchizedek has great theology. He's clear. He sees the Most High God as the Creator. He sees the Most High God as the Deliverer and the Savior. He sees the Most High God as the Sovereign over all. Now, let's fast forward 1,000 years. King David, writing, writes these words in Psalm 110.1. He says, The Lord said to my Lord. God talking to God. Now, that must have been such an unusual type of a thing for people to read. What in the world is he talking about? Now, let's fast forward another 1,000 years to Jesus. Jesus is engaging a conversation in Matthew 22 uh, with the religious leaders. And he says, um, well, whose son is the Christ? And they answer, well, he's the son of David. And Jesus says this, Matthew 22:45 45 and 46. He says, if David then calls him Lord, what is he doing? He's quoting Psalm 110.1. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Then we're told, and and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day or on did anyone dare question him anymore. But if we were studying Psalm 110 after verse 1 saying, My Lord said, the Lord said to my Lord, King David still writing, the Lord speaking to the Lord, speaking to the Christ, the Messiah. Listen to what David says or what David writes. He got from the Lord in verse 4. Again, remember, this is a thousand years after Melchizedek, and it's a thousand years before Jesus. It's right in the middle. He writes this, Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not relent, and then he quotes the Lord. You are a priest forever according to the order of, Of Melchizedek. So the Lord says to the Lord, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. What is God having David do? He is pointing to one greater than Melchizedek who is to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, and the religious leaders. They, Jesus once again talked them into a corner. They fully well knew he's thinking he's the Lord talking to the Lord. And they're like, every time we answer this guy, we get stumped, so we're going we're gonna to back off. You see, this explains why Abraham, the great man of God, uh, paid a tithe or 10% of his money, of his resources, to Melchizedek. What what is that? It is the lesser gives the tithe to the greater. The the lesser makes an offering to the greater. You see, friends, that's what we are doing When we give money to the Lord's work, the lesser, us, is giving to the greater, God. The people who can be sometimes righteous and other times unrighteous are giving to who? The king of righteousness. So I know sometimes people will say to me, and before I was even a pastor, would say, does your church require you to give money to it? And I would always go, I really don't give money to the church. I give money to the Lord's work that takes place through the church. <laughs> I don't really, I don't, I don't think of it as giving to the, to the church. I mean, it is good to, to give to the place where you receive spiritual care and you know, you need certain things and, and they're available to you. And, you know, but, but ultimately we give it unto the Lord, the lesser giving to the greater. You know, like Jesus who would come 2,000 years later after Melchizedek in the midst of the unrighteous kings of the world, in Melchizedek there was a king who stood for Righteousness. Now, he was not part of the, the alliance of kings in Canaan. You remember the alliance of the five wicked kings, if you will, that, that, that got captured by the four big shots. And so we might say that Melchizedek, in the midst of, again, the, the moral cesspool of, of Canaan, he stood out as heaven's man for the time. Let me ask you a question that is as challenging to me as it is I want it to be to you. Do you want to be in, in the area in which God has given you? Do you want to be the man or woman for the time? Do you, do you want to be that person? It's not easy. And I don't pretend that it's easy. But I do know in the few tastes of it I've had in my life, that it is wholly worth it. It is worth it to be that person. Uh, Interesting when Melchizedek, and he's a king, Abram is sort of like a king. Melchizedek is is a priest, and Abram is sort of like a priest. He builds altars and makes sacrifices. But notice in Melchizedek, there is not a hint of jealousy. Not a hint of it. He he comes out and he's got the the celebration food with him and and, and, bread, again, meaning life in the Old Testament, joy. uh, Wine is symbolic of joy. And he's happy for him. And he's happy for for the victory for the kingdom of God. Do you know that Being happy for others when God uses them in the kingdom is a sign of a true man or woman of God. You know, sometimes people get very jealous when other people are used by God. That is not good. That is not good. If that's you, listen, don't be jealous. Get out there, pick up your baseball bat, and get up, step into the box, and take a swing. I can remember times when I would play baseball in high school and, and we'd go up against like the best pitcher in the county or something like that. And I would just be watching him throw fastballs by me. And I'd get in the car and I'd say to my dad and be like, oh, oh my gosh. And he'd say, listen, son, if you never step in the batter's box, you don't stand any chance of hitting the ball. And so he he was, he was happy for him. He didn't he didn't, he didn't care that other people might be saying, hey, maybe this Abraham is, is now the guy. You know, some people have to have all the limelight on them. Not good. Sometimes people say to me around here, they go, you know, I noticed that you put this person in charge of that, or you put this person in that, or, you, or, you, or you're letting them do this, or you're letting them lead a group, or, or something like that, or you're letting them run with this, and, you know, that, that's... You, know, you might be taking a chance with that one. Why would you do that? And I always say, because I love watching God use unlikely people. <laughs> it just jacks my faith, man. <laughs> and they're like, what if they mess up? I go, well, then they're just like the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> we'll figure it out. He was happy to see Abram used by God to see people live so, so they could So they could hear about this great God and their lives and their eternal destiny could be changed. Just imagine all the people that Abram saved and his army saved. Do you think he deserved to listen to them, to Abram, about his God? The New Testament is full of commands that we are not to be a jealous people, we are not to envy one another. We rather we are to support one another in the work of the gospel. And that's again a, a plug for community groups because your group should be doing that, and if you are not, you should be. And you don't have to be the leader to do that. So someone says in their group, "Hey, you know, I, I tried to share the gospel with my coworker today, and it and it didn't go so well." Don't wait for the leader to say it. You say it. Hey, man, thanks for getting up and taking a swing. That's all God asks you to do. His word will not return void. You don't need to be the leader to be an encourager. You don't don't need to be the leader to be the leader. (laughs) You don't need to be the leader to be a leader in any walk of life. Because in most of the environments in which you run, You are now the resident biblical theologian. You are now the pastor of your work area, of your home, of your bus stop, of your mom's group. It's you. And don't be afraid to get up and take a swing. Notice it was adversity. That brought these two men together. I'm sure there was a sense, I don't know if they knew each other or not, but I'm sure there was a sense of loneliness for both of them. It can be very lonely being the only Christian in your family, it can be very lonely being the only Christian in your workplace. It can be very, very lonely when you feel like you're at this alone. Sorry. This really makes me miss Pastor Rocco. Many of you didn't know how sick he was. He was a very, very sick man. And then when I got sick with somebody else who had a chronic illness that I related to in some fashion but never did so much as when I got one. He became more than a brother to me. And three or four nights a week, we would sit up in my office for an hour after everybody else left. Two men, sick, and desiring passionately to serve the Lord and to encourage one another to do it. Many a times I have said to him, to the Lord, why him? Why him? See, he didn't mind that I was the voice of Calvary Chapel, if you will. He, he did a lot with our radio show, and he did our radio station, and he would always come up to my office and he would say this, what can I take off your plate? What can I do to make your life easier so you can focus on where God wants to take us? Well, now here comes the temptation. I did better with that than I thought I would. Actually, I didn't even plan to say it till this morning. (laughs) Now here comes the temptation, verse 21. Now the king of Sodom, again, remember evil doesn't take a day off, said to Abram, hey, pass the wine. We can party and celebrate. No, he doesn't. Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. Another version says, give me the people and keep the possessions that we stole. We stole when, you would, when you would conquer kings, you would take their stuff. Why? To weaken them. You keep the stuff for yourself. Now, realistically speaking, Abram could have kept everything, but you have to realize what a huge political mess that would be. Remember we said before uh, last week that what would happen was you would conquer a group of people, then you would take their stuff and you would have tribute, you have them pay taxes, and that would only go on for so long and then there would be a rebellion. Abram is not there to take these people by force, he's there to take them by grace, He's there not to take the possession of the land by force. He's there to get it by, by gift from God. And there will be a rebellion, which he'll have no time for. A lot of us, you ever find yourself in life, you're, you find yourself involved in so many time wasters. You're not focused on the things that you know God wants you to be focused on. But what's he trying to do? He's trying to get Abraham into his camp. He's trying to get Abraham into his way of thinking and ultimately... Under his rule, he's trying to trick Abraham so the king of Sodom has a deal for Abraham. Notice how different his attitude is than Melchizedek's. No thank you for the rescue. Although he provides a great example for us. When you help people in the name of God, do not expect thanks. Thanks. If they thank you, well, you lost some points in heaven. If they thank you, which is polite to thank people, you should thank people when they help you. It is polite. But but don't expect it. You'll just end up disappointed. And there's no mention of God's role in the victory. None. He doesn't go, hey, man, you're God. He's awesome. He might want to do something like this. i got a plan. I was thinking of that. None of that. Why? He knows that if God is not the victor, then God has no claim on the people. See, if God is the victor, then he has a claim on the people. If he's not the victor, he has no claim on the people. Therefore, sin and death will continue to still have its claim. That's why the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ is so important. And you're in my response to it. You see the king of sodom is a picture of what the world is after the king of sodom is a picture is what the unseen evil world is after and how subtle it is as it hunts us down it hunts after the hearts and souls of men and women you see the king of sodom he comes in and he makes it sound like he is compromising When in reality, he is asking Abraham to compromise. Abraham, look at this plan I have for you. You can be rich, and all the people will love you. You get to keep all of the money, and you'll set the people free. You give them to me, and everybody will think, what a guy Abraham is. But again... From a previous lesson, when him and Lot looked over the land, Abraham sees with the eyes of faith. Verse 22, But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, there's another term, same there, fourth time, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap. In other words, words, he says, I will not take the smallest little thing, the lowest value little thing, and that I will, I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. He's like, I know what you're going to do. You're going to take the people and you're going to say, I cut a deal with them and I made them rich. I don't want anything. I don't want anything from you. Take it all. I don't, I don't want anything. Except, he says, only that the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men who went with me, Anner, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. Now, this is very interesting. He says, listen, they ate some stuff. That's it. They can keep it. They're also entitled to a portion of the the battle for for their duties. Let them keep it. You know, let the men who went with me, those guys, let, let them keep it. Now, you might say, why does Abraham say to them, I'm not keeping it, you're not keeping it? Do you know why that is? Because, loved ones, you can't force discipleship on other people. You can't. We often say that that following God is often more caught than taught. You model it for people, but you can't force it. The Apostle Paul says, I don't want you to give to to the Lord out of compulsion but willingly for God loves a cheerful giver. Very interesting. Very interesting that God picks out very few people that he considers special but but God loves a cheerful giver. So if you're like, "Ah, here you go God, here's a little bit of money. It's a few shekels. God's like, keep your money, please. But even if you're a kid, and you're putting a dollar in the offering or, or the change. Sometimes the guys in the offering go, what do we do with this change? I'm like, you count that, man. That, that could be big yeah. money. <laughs> Heaven could be like, that quarter, man, that's big stuff. Well, that was put in for, by some five-year-old, man. Dude. <laughs> you know what that, that is as a percentage of his money? And so you can't force discipleship. So here's, here's the choice that Abraham faces, and we all face, Sodom or Salem. Which king will you and I follow? Sodom represents, let's call it the great shortcut. Melchizedek, he represents the cross-centered life, a life that Abraham is committed to. You see, by giving 10% of his wealth to God, Abram has shown us that he has money, but money doesn't have him. And I know a lot of wealthy people who have money, but it doesn't have them. And I know a lot of wealthy people who money has them. And I know a lot of not-so-wealthy people who don't have much money at all, but money has them. They just are more focused on stuff and possessions than they care to admit. Also, Abram will not allow anyone other than the Lord to get credit for his success, not even himself. Now, does that mean we still have to work hard at the Lord's work? Yes, we do. Yes, we do but we give the credit to God. You you notice before the message, I prayed that that God would work in our hearts. That doesn't mean that I haven't spent hours with this text. I spent Wednesday morning, Thursday morning, Friday morning, and a little bit of yesterday with it, and another hour and a half this morning. Don't think anything of it. That's my job. Asking God, what's the simplest way to communicate it so people could understand it? But honestly, I know they're just words unless God affects it in your heart. So that's why I say, Lord, I'm just going to just do what I can do. But, Lord, you've got to do the work in the people's hearts, and the people have to respond to you, not to me. Abraham shows us that he trusts the Lord, he's loyal to the Lord, as he stands where many of us often stand, he stands at the crossroads of faith. He shows us that he's a disciple of Salem, not Sodom. He refuses to fall away. And here's the question for all of us. Here's the question for all of you watching at home and and, and who's ever listening to this going out. are, Are you and I, are we going to be like Abram, Abraham, Are we going to refuse to fall away? Now, here's what I don't want you to do with that remark. I said, I want you to, are you going to refuse to fall away? I don't want you to feel guilty. That's the cheap man and woman's way out. I don't want you to feel guilty. I want you to make a choice. God wants me to make a choice. Not to feel guilty, oh, I haven't been walking with God. Done. His mercies are new every morning. Done. In the past. What about now? What about today? What about tomorrow? Don't feel guilty. Make a choice. And don't rest on your laurels. Church is littered with people who once walked strongly with God and now barely do it all or don't at all. Sodom offers Abraham a chance to buy his way into the promises of God. I mean, if he gets all that money, he the promised land, God promised him the land, right? He could just rationalize it. Oh, this is how I'm going to get it. I get all this money, I go out and I start scooping up properties. That's how I'm going to get it. But f- faith trusts and faith watches for God's blessing. Now, maybe that would be the way for you. I don't know, but he knows it's not the way for him. Going to save those people when they captured was an extremely dangerous venture, but this is much more dangerous because right now, Sodom is attacking Abraham's faith and trust. Sodom or sin will always offer you a deal, will always offer you a shortcut. But Salem, Jerusalem, Salem, peace through Jesus Christ, offers you a destiny, offers you a security, offers you an eternity. May God Almighty help us all to be focused on today, but also to have eyes to see far beyond today. To be in the game today but to walk and live in such a way that we're in the game tomorrow. Abraham had to wait for God to give him the land, even if it meant dying before the day he got the land and he won't get it till the next life. That is faith. Maybe God has promised you something and maybe you're not gonna get it in this life and you're okay with it. That is faith. The temptation for us to cut corners and compromise and think we will still get God's blessing is real. And God says, no. Well, if any of you are a little bit chilly right now in this room, it's going to get a little hot for a couple minutes. Sodom represents the test. Of sexual purity and sexual integrity. Will we wait for God's plan or will we give in to the pressure? Sodom tempts our business integrity. Will we be honest in our business dealings? Will we be honest with our customers? Will we be honest with our taxes? will we give our employer a full day's work or do we expect to be paid for doing next to nothing? Sodom tests our financial integrity before God. Will we keep all our own money and possessions for ourselves or will we trust the Lord? You see, Sodom is the king of self. Sodom does what Sodom wants to do, but Abraham chooses the glory of God above everything else in his life, and he trusts God with everything because he's fully committed. That's a big challenge in a church like ours. It really is. People often ask me, so what what kind of, your church, man, like like what kind of people come to your church? And I always say, our church is a very unusual type of place. Typically people who really want to follow hard after God love our church, and typically people who know nothing absolutely about God love our church. But the people in the middle, they hate our church. (laughs) Well, they certainly hate me. And it's interesting you say why would the people who know nothing about God like the church? I think it's because they look at the people in the middle and they go there's got to be more to this faith and God thing than the way they live. And so it's easy in a church like ours to for many of us that we're probably more committed than a lot of other Christians or people who would say they're Christians. But the real question remains, are we fully committed? Half-hearted commitment is a chronic disease in the American church. And now some of you are going, oh, now you're really beating us up here, Pastor Jim. Let me be perfectly honest with you. I think it's worse among pastors than it is among the people in the pews. Many of you know the story of of a very good friend of mine who is a pastor, felt the call, And he said he didn't want to become one because of the tremendous reputation pastors have for being lazy. And you know what? A lot of them are. Very, very lazy. I remember when I first became a pastor, the first thing was they joked with me as all the guys in the room uh, made me turn around. They wanted to look at how big the target on my back was very encouraging <laughs> and the second thing was i realized that i had not arrived but now the real work had begun and please pray for me this these people often ask me pray for me. how can i pray for you you know the biggest thing i always pray is that i don't do anything stupid and then some of you go no really i go no really <laughs> I always tell people, if they go, well, I'll bill you, will you pay me? I go, listen, if I don't pay you, you can get me on the cover of the Daily Record. Trust me, they'd love to hear about me (laughs) not paying you. But um, pray that I never lose that mindset, that the work has just begun, that I haven't arrived, and I never will arrive, and i got to work hard every day as long as God gives me the ability So how do we get there? How do we get to be fully committed? We stay close to Jesus. Jesus is the bread of life and the wine of joy. And the closer you stay to Jesus, let me tell you this, I know, the more Sodom loses its appeal. So two kings came to Abraham. To one he said, I won't take a thing from you. To the other, he said, here, please, let me offer part of my riches that you gave me to you, and let me offer my life to you. Ultimately, we must stay close to one king. Ultimately, we will stay close to one king. And Melchizedek points us to Jesus, the perfect king of righteousness, who reversed the lesser giving the offering to the greater. He reversed it. Jesus himself was the greater who gave himself an offering for you and for me, the lesser on the cross. Now Melchizedek was also a priest long before priests came from the family of the tribe of Levi or what we call the Levitical priesthood, uh, which came through the law of Moses. So Melchizedek was before the priesthood of Moses. Just like next week we're going to see that grace came before the law. Next week, marquee Old Testament passage. I'm bursting at the seams. I won't give you the sermon now. New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 6, verse 20, in the second half of the verse says this, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, people would be like, well, what order? I don't know anything about this guy. We know the Levitical priesthood that Moses gave us. We, we know that order of, of Levi, but we don't know the order of Melchizedek. What is that? Well, in the next chapter, Hebrews 7, verse 3, we hear about this order of Melchizedek. It says, "...without father, without mother, without genealogy, in other words, no family ties, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually." And so what does Melchizedek represent to us? He points us to the eternal priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who fulfilled all three Old Testament offices, Jesus, the prophet, the priest, and the king. That same chapter, Hebrews 7, verses 14 through 19, in fact, 6 through 8 is this whole, 7 through uh, 9 is this whole big chapter, you know, this whole big section, but uh, verse 14, chapter 7, for it is evident... This is again after Jesus has ascended into heaven. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And yet it is far more evident in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. What's he doing? He's quoting Psalm 110. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of, ho- of a better hope, that would be Jesus, through which we draw near to God. Like Melchizedek, Jesus came seemingly out of nowhere. He was not born of a priestly family. John tells us in chapter 1 that Jesus had no beginning. He is the eternal God-man. He rose from the dead. He has no end of life. And while the Levitical priesthood focused on succession, Jesus is the true Melchizedek without successor who once again gave himself as an offering for you. Unlike priests of the Old Testament who offered sacrifices on the cross, Our great high priest, Jesus Christ, God become a man, himself was the sacrifice. That's why Hebrews 10.10 says he was offered once for all. That's why when we have the Lord's table, as I hope we will do next Sunday, we don't Reoffer Jesus. This sacrifice has been done once for all. We remember what Jesus did for us. To all who put their trust in Him, again, we'll learn more about that next week. Jesus offers to you the forgiveness of sins and the power of an endless life. Like Abraham. We all need a king. We all need Jesus. We need him in our greatest successes. And we need him in our greatest failures. We need him every day. And we need him for all eternity. You see, Abraham did a good deed for Lot. We might say it was a good work for Lot. But Abraham also knew that despite that good work, he needed to choose a king, a king that could save his soul and a king that he had to faithfully follow here on earth. Like Abraham, we also needed a priest, but not an earthly one. We need an eternal priest, one who can take us home to heaven. Famous verse, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Friend, the king of Sodom has come, and the king of Sodom has come to detro- destroy your life. Jesus came to save your life, and Jesus came to give you life, a life that he says is abundant, and a life that he says is eternal. So friend, let me ask you this, which king will you follow? Today, Jesus invites you to come, to come to the king of righteousness, to come to the king of peace, to come to the great high priest, to come to the God most high, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's pray.